0: Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches fashion podcast. I'm Danielle Rodeuchin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books to art to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches fashion townhouse in London. My guest on this episode is the fashion designer Norma Kamali. For more than 50 years, this New Yorker has been a trailblazer in the industry, from introducing the notion of sportswear as everyday clothing, to her famed sleeping bag coat worn by the bouncers at Studio 54, to shoulder pads, to unitards, to high-heeled sneakers. Then there's her iconic swimwear, famously worn by Farrah Fawcett in her iconic poster, as well as by nearly every cosmopolitan cover girl going in the early 80s. In contemporary culture, you'll recognize her work in the fringe shorts worn by Beyonce in her Run the World Girls video, and the vintage wedding dress Lady Gaga wore in her You and I video. She spoke to me about what it was like having Elvis as a customer, that time when John and Yoko popped into her store, and why in this day and age of female empowerment and gender fluidity, she feels like her clothing is more relevant than ever. Molly, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you here.
1: What brings you to London? I'm in London, um, back to actually where I began my career. And I'm here to really update everybody about what I'm doing. And um, my connection to London is almost a spiritual connection because because my roots are here. I love the idea of a spiritual connection to London. Um, Was it 1968 that you were here? Um, Actually, I was here earlier. I, um, I was very frustrated with the idea of the fashion industry in the '60s, because it was—you so were based in—you're
0: in you're, you're a New, Yorker, New York, and you yeah. were
1: based in New York, right? And so it was Mad Men time, and garter belts and stockings and everything matching. And I really didn't like fashion, and. Even before it was fashionable, I was buying '30s and '40s clothes because I loved the vintage films and. Where did you buy those
0: then? Where were they available? In
1: these very junky basement stores wow. that were not nobody really knew about, but I was just so in love with that period, and I didn't want to look like these matchy, with hats and gloves and everything, and I went to FIT and the students would dress that way, and I thought, I really I, wow. I just really don't like You were
0: studying fashion, were you studying fashion? I was, stu- FIT? I
1: was actually studying painting, right. and then uh, to back it up, for s- yeah. my mother so I could get a job I um, I went to FIT on a illustration scholarship, fashion illustration and I I had a horrible experience. My first job interview. Um, I was very excited that I could finally get a job, and I had my big portfolio. And I go into the garment center, and I walk into this. What was the job for? What kind of a job was it? Fashion illustration. So I walk into this office and the guy's got his feet up on his desk so and what, he's eating what year, what year are we talking this of? is 63, 63. 64 um, and so he's eating a tuna sandwich and um, and he and it's not exactly what I was expecting I mean this is my first big job interview in an area of you know what I thought I could do and so he said young lady um, why don't you put your portfolio down over there and come here so I really felt the power in the room and it wasn't me. And so I put my portfolio down and I walked over and he said, "Now why don't you turn around for me?" And I turned around and I was so humiliated and embarrassed that I did that, but I kept hearing my mother saying, "If you don't get a job, why don't you learn how to type? This art thing is ridiculous." And I literally ran out with my portfolio and said, I am never doing this. I don't want to do this. And so I decided that what I would do was travel. So, How did your mom feel about that? Well, <laughs> she, she was just happy that I got, well, travel, get a job at an airline and travel. So I got a job at an airline in the reservations department. And I don't... How I even got the job was with the airline. It was Northwest Orient Airlines, and um, so I was in reservations, working on a Univac computer in the sixties, poking away one finger at a time. And every weekend for twenty nine dollars round trip, I was in London for four years. So my roots were grounded right then, and they are. So
0: what was London like then? So. 60, mid, what was it, it's now mid So now
1: we're 64, 65. Yeah. What, was it? what was it like here? So I, my friends at the airline said, there's a really great bed and breakfast for $6 a night, just off the King's Road. Said it's not the middle of town, but it's a good place to get a cheap sleep. So I booked my, you know, trip. I. There I was, I had my breakfast and I went out and I ended up on Sloan Square and I said to this guy, are there any stores or anything, because there was nothing. It was an artist area, you you guys could not imagine. It was grey. There were neighborhood type stores, service, shoes service, whatever, um, and nothing. Literally, art supply, a lot of art supply stores. Everything was gray. People were gray. They were wearing gray tweed, somber colors. It was so old British idea, if you think in that way. And, and it was misty and gray. And um, I was overwhelmed, and the umbrellas, and I just felt that. And then all of a sudden, I see this color pouring up the front of a building over the front of a store and it was like the light. I was like, oh my God, I've got to get there. And I ran to this place. It was like a shrine of I belong here and the color was magnificent like I'd never seen before. And there was music coming out that was very unfamiliar because... We were in Motown land in New York, you know, give me Marvin Gaye, give me all that, what is this music? And I felt like there, every chill up and down my spine, I knew I found the place I belonged and I was just in love with it. And from there on out, every weekend, Thursday, I would leave. Was it what was it, was it Bieber? No, it was this place called Dandy's Biba oh, was, Dandy's, B- yeah. Biba was Not there Biba, it was Pre-Biba the totally, pre, the, Well, it was actually at the very beginnings Biba and bus stop Were in um, in Knightsbridge And they definitely had Another energy It was a little bit different It, But this was Seeing the grey And then the King's Road just exploded every weekend the color exploded over every building and the music and the people all of a sudden the gray tweed and all of that disappeared it's like, it's like a generation disappeared and another generation popped up Color and haircuts and shoes and skirts up to here. And before that, nobody ever wore a skirt above their knee. It just didn't happen because you were wearing a garter belt and stockings. It just, none of it would work. And so I, of course... As fast as you could get me into a short skirt, I was in it. And I would come back to New York, and the cars would screech. And <laughs> I, I every prostitute name I was called, because like, nobody could understand what was going on. So you brought, did you bring pieces of clothing back to New York from London? For me, first, I was making $80 a week. And I would say more than half of it would... In the clothes I would bring back from London Dresses from Biba and bus stop Were like $12 And I would take them and roll them up And put rubber bands around them And pile them up in a garment bag As I brought back more for friends And then finally I opened a store And started to sell Not just Biba and bus stop But there was an antiquarius Also on Kings Road that was spectacular And I brought back there was so much Victorian beautiful beautiful you know little bed tops and gorgeous veils and, and and magnificent pieces that you can never get today just because of the time why do you why are you so drawn to the vintage pieces? I think the vintage pieces um, I'm not so drawn to them today, but at the time. They really um, were grounding as far as fashion went. I think not just for me. I think everybody that I was meeting in London felt the same way. We loved all the new, but mixing the vintage with the new was very expressive. Everybody dressed in a different way. Nobody wanted to look like anybody else. And the more unique you presented, the the better it was and um, so by taking vintage and sort of putting that together with what was going on you really saw extraordinary style and imagination men and women I mean yeah. it wasn't just one or the other so I was wondering what you would put into your cabinet that you find inspiring and that means something to you well, since we're talking about London and in that period of time and a time of revolution, um, I would put memories of not only the first time I heard music that was different or the first time I saw this abundance of color in gray, Um, but also the spirit of a time that I think everybody still longs for, where there's this purity of spirit, a very positive, upbeat attitude, um, and just an incredible power of creativity. Were you ever tempted to live here? Ask me how many times. <laughs> Ask me how many times I packed my bags and said, okay, I'm doing it, this is it. I just felt, uh, I was, it was really hard for me because my I love everything about London. I mean, even in this trip, if I say one more time, oh, God, I love it here, I just do. But because for me, even way back then, getting on a plane and coming here was so easy. I still feel the same way, where I can almost have a double life. And I did for four years, there were people here that just knew me as Norma from New York, and I. they would see me every weekend, just the way we see our friends, right? I mean, you see more friends on the weekend than during the week. So I think I can create another double life and how did it take off the store that you opened in New York so i i opened the store primarily just to bring things back for my friends and then their friends and had the 60s so thing that was in london arrived there yet? Um, in in different ways mm-hmm. i was i was picking things that um, I loved, and that I felt really had a great spirit. And together. you got a sort of fan base pretty quickly. Yeah, people, so celebrities I, um, coming in. Yeah, yeah. So at t- my rent was two hundred and eighty-five dollars a month. Wow. It was a basement. I I don't know if you what the Salvation Army is here, but we ha- I bought everything from the Salvation Army to sort of decorate, and I painted a pattern on the floor. And, and Where was it? The it? It was 229 East 53rd Street. And so soon enough we were painting the buildings different colors and then in six months of uh, doing that, I had some ideas of things that I really wanted to see that I thought would go with what I was doing that I wasn't finding anywhere so I started to make them. And And I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to really sew. or I I wasn't even able to put a zipper in at the time because I would make pants for myself and then sew myself into the pants and um, always have a seam ripper and a needle and thread in case I had to go to the bathroom. So I definitely was in primary stages of my skills. (laughs) And so I got some help, and I made some things. And... I was shocked in six months I had a page in Vogue and then I had a page in Harper's Bazaar and I thought oh my god, they're going to find out I don't know what I'm doing this is really, it's a—it's great but when they find out I'm like totally a jerk So where did that confidence come from to just do it? Um, I had an incredible um, sense of Belief In what I was doing Like I I thought I knew everything And had I known That I knew nothing then um, I wouldn't have gone near it But I really believed I knew how to do these things Um, And the more I got involved in it Then the more I realized I knew nothing And that I really Had to learn And so I learned how to make patterns I learned how to do everything that I do now. And so I'm finally getting to the point where I think "Hmm, maybe I do know something now. But it (laughs) took a little while to get here. What else would you put into your cabinet? Um, I think I would put in the, um, the difference between the craft of designing in the 60s to what designing is today, and how different, and what designing for the future would be. Um, I think the skill and the labor force you need for it um, aren't going to exist anymore. I don't think millennials really want to be at a sewing machine. I don't. If you're in China or anywhere, I don't. I think you'd rather work somewhere else and do something else so I've even looked at and put a collection together that had no sewing at all and no sewing machine use so I think that that skill that I finally learned is no longer valid in the real world it, it's going to evolve into a different technology thanks to everything else that we're doing you say that in a way as if you don't think that's a negative thing or a Oh, shame. not at all. I find it... I love the 60s, and I love my beginnings there, but everybody should know, because I've been through all the decades, this is the decade, this is it. This is the most, by far, exciting, innovative, creative time. It's very different totally different it may not be as naive and innocent as the 60s but it's certainly more powerful because it's global and instant have you always been when did you become
0: a girl on the scene as it were because i know that i read about people coming to your store like the new york dolls came and one of them wore your pants which I think you designed for women but mm-hmm. they wore them and tell me a bit about that when did you think oh I'm really
1: I'm on the scene now um, I still don't think I am so I, I the truth be told I'm so comfortable hiding under my rock and I believe by hiding under a rock um, I've been able to sustain 50 years in the business I think when you become too popular um, people easily get tired of whatever it is you're doing. You could be creating magic every second, but there's just so much of that magic people want. So I think having a certain anonymity is very good, but I understand your question in the fact that I've been so lucky, and I have no idea why, that from the day I started, literally, um, celebrities have been drawn to my clothes and and i don 't give free clothes to people. people actually pay for them and um, come back so it not only inspired me to think when I was at points where i couldn 't pay the rent, and I was wondering if I would sustain another day in business and then all of a sudden. Elvis Presley is buying these gowns in the numbers for all of his girlfriends and I'm thinking, Elvis Presley, this is weird. How does Elvis Presley know who I am? And then it was What kind of gowns did he buy? Well he would have these blonde girlfriends and he would buy which gowns. Which year is this? This is probably early seventies. And um and so it was great because not only okay now i can pay the rent but how how did he find me like how did how did that end up here or you know a series of of really fantastic did he ever come into the store no no he didn't but john lennon used to come in with yoko and what kind and of things did they go for first of all john lennon to me, I always thought was one of these just historic talents, but he had an extreme sense of humor on the super dry side, and he was very funny with Yoko as she would try on clothes. He was um, just a really great guy. So was he into, he was into the stuff that she was wearing, and had an opinion on it? No, he would just play with her totally play with her and their relationship because I always wondered well what is that relationship but their relationship was very deep and really really tight and and super nice and I was one of those oh no she's breaking up the Beatles (laughs) (laughs) you were I thought yeah no nobody can go near them but it was you could tell that they had a very special feeling and and then she asked me to make her um, dress for his memorial and her suit, actually, for, for the memorial, wow. which I thought was really sweet.
0: Do you still stay in touch
1: with her? I haven't seen her in a long, long time, now. I'm under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> I find that really hard to believe.
0: Um, I recently watched the... I went to a screening of the film about Studio 54, which right. you spoke spoken um and that ian Sh- was about ian Schrager, um and obviously you designed the coats well i don't know if you designed them specifically for the doormen of studio 54 but they wore them right and that was just another example i was thinking of of how you would just somehow on the i mean you seem to you say it as if it, it was by accident but i was just you know it, it what was an- another amazing yeah. thing to be mm. around
1: that was an interesting time because obviously Studio 54 became the center of the universe for a very short time, three years. Yeah. And everybody thinks I was there every night, <laughs> but I never went. I was swear to you, I was under my rock. I was sewing away. And um, I was very close to Ian. Um, but, you
0: dated, No. For,
1: yeah. Um, and so I... I knew what was going on, but I really never went. I would go at at the end of the day to meet him before we went home, and I, he would show me the party and what it was going to look like, and then I would hear about how well it went or whatever happened. Tell me about these coats. Was, so it, was it the... Sleeping, sleeping bag, bag coat because so, you're famous for the sleeping right. bag coat for inventing it yeah. and it's got so, a great story behind it right. so in 73 I was camping and <laughs> freezing cold and I thought I need to make a coat out of this and so I went home and I cut up my sleeping bag and I thought it was really genius that I didn't have any waste. the sleeves the collar everything fit in this from this coat, from this bag. And I actually use the same pattern today for the coat. And every year since, I've made the sleeping bag coat. Just so that the same
0: one that Rihanna was in the other day? Like yeah, come yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, so in any case, the guys were standing outside and it gets really cold in New York, as everybody knows. Um, and so they all bought the sleeping bag coat so that they could stand outside for a while. And the beauty of it was then everybody was very, everybody planned what they were going to wear to try to get into Studio 54. So, um, I sold a lot of clothes, by the way, to people who never even got in, but a lot of my clothes got in. And the sleeping bag coats were sort of a funny thing, because guys would buy them then, with the hopes that then they would get in, because they had sleeping bag coat on. But that was another sort of resurgence period. And I made um, special coats for Steve, so his were custom. For Steve? Rubell what kind of thing did he what was his like um very bright he was just orange kind of exuberant, and reds yeah flamboyant. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> yes that's so cool <laughs> um what about the next
1: thing that you put into your cabinet maybe the sleeping bag coat mm. or maybe a sleeping bag <laughs> back to the roots yeah <laughs> with ducks in it ducks on <laughs> flannel <laughs> i really would love to speak about swimsuits
0: as well because okay. obviously you're so famous for the sleeping bag coat but also um it'd be remiss not to talk about normal kamali and swimsuits um they're very because like high cut leggy bikini line is having another moment now and um i think you became you know farrah fawcett wore your red swimming suit in the famous poster, which is sort of iconic. But there's also all those other amazing images. Um, just before the podcast, you were showing me those pictures of, of um, Christy Brinkley on the cover of Cosmo mm-hmm. um, and just all those really cool 80s. Because I think we was sort of moving in. It. It's in the 80s that you really came into
1: your own as a designer, would you say? It was actually, I think for swimwear, it was before that. There were, you know, I've had these sort of reinventions and evolutions and the swimwear really was I would say um the the punch and the 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 attention I got for it really started early um, you were because you used that sort of spandex I mean I say
0: spandex yeah. I don't know
1: if it was actually spandex yeah. but that kind of you were
0: the first one to yeah. use that. it or?
1: didn't exist mm. and I I actually bought um I loved swimming and so I I wanted to make swimsuits because I wanted to wear them. And I really liked the idea of having something stretchy. And I'm not sure how that came together. I think it was a little bit of dance and stuff like that. And I found fabric that was made for the circus. And I also found girdle fabric, which there was a lot of because of the time so but there wasn't really anything that is similar to what we have now so i would take these fabrics and have them dyed and i would make swimsuits out of them and then i would make pedal pushers out of them and i would make these clothes that were really very new because people didn't wear stretchy clothes. It wasn't, so unless you were wearing a girdle, that was the end of your stretchy clothes collection. So I started making swimsuits, and I started making them out of solid colors, which was not the norm at the time. Printed swimsuits, flower print swimsuits, low light. Which year swimsuits? is this now? This it's is 70s. Yeah. And so finally, um, I'd been playing around a bit with that, and since everybody had this low leg, and I wanted my legs to look longer, I mean, that's, you know, I'm thinking about what's going to be good for me. So I kept pulling it up and pulling it up, and I did this bikini that had a very high leg and a sort of a bra that's like a butterfly wing, and I took the strings and then wrapped them around, and I took the strings to hold up, the sides of the bikini so they'd stay up really high and tie the string in the front. And it was an experiment, and I wasn't sure if it was great or not. And then Scavolo, who was a very famous photographer at the time and cosmopolitan, was the... it was the feminist, you know, book... We learned that we had a G-spot. Did you know know Helen gunn Yes, I did. We we learned that we could have orgasms. We learned all of these things through Cosmo. And um, they chose this swimsuit for the cover. And all of a sudden, I had to be in the swimwear business. And it was like, what is this? (laughs) And it's a hard business to be in. And Christy was just that was her launching pad for her career. Yeah. So we always feel like we, you know, we have we shared something together. It was that moment. Did for you talk her. to her about it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so um, that really started me, and it was quite different from any other swimsuit. Mm-hmm. That particular suit I had on Instagram, and everybody asked for it. So in this collection right here in this room, you see it in every color, and The other suit that that we call the Marissa, a High Lake suit, so almost five years ago, four and a half years ago, one of the uh, girls in the PR department who trolls every vintage store for any Norma Kamali anything... Um, and came in and said, "You've got to do this suit again." And I said, "Nobody's <laughs> going to wear that leg anymore. Not now. Everybody's so conservative." Uh-uh. She said, "No, I think so." So I said, "If if we sell it, then I'm naming it after you." So obviously, it's called the Marissa. <laughs> she totally got it. And um, so I believe that that suit actually started this new trend again because yeah. we were early in doing it, and I was very questioning about Because all it. those
0: girls, the Instagram girls, are, yeah. All, all, all over that shape, like yeah. Bella Hadid yeah. and Kendall yeah. Jenner. they love that high Yeah. Shape. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what about, so let's go back to the, would you put something, would you put a swimsuit into your cabinet? Do you think? I think I
1: probably would have to, <laughs> and maybe I would put the butterfly suit in there. I think it's that so was sort of the beginning. Um, and the, there are, I mean, there are so many
0: things that you're famous for. You could just go on, um, athleisure, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're really associated with, because up till when, until you started doing it, it wasn't a thing to wear um, jersey, no. fabric, right. no. for a night out, no. or was that, so have you always been really a sporty person, and was it through that, or was it just,
1: you saw a gap in the market, how did that work? Um, it's never that intelligent, <laughs> so um, what was happening in Studio 54 was very powerful, the clothes, a lot of my clothes were there because they were out of spandex and stretchy fabrics and bright fabrics, and there was a lot of glittery faces and hair. And, um, and so at the tail end of that, um, I was doing my swimwear collection. And like I said, I love swimming. And when I would go swimming, I always had this men's sweatshirt from the Army-Navy store That I would put on because I'd get chilled from swimming and not every pool was heated then. And, you know, so I would stick it on and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to get some gray sweatshirting and make swimwear cover-ups. And so I bought all this sweatshirting, and I made some cover-ups, and then I thought, oh, my God, this would be a great dress. I made dresses. Then, oh, my God, this would be a fabulous evening gown. This would be a great coat. So I had 36 pieces in gray sweatshirting, and up to that point, um, I would be copied all the time because I didn't have a distribution. I had this store, and it was like every design group or department store would come in, they would buy up everything, and I would see full pages in the, in the newspapers. And meanwhile, I'm not paying the rent. I'm, not, I'm trying to figure out, I'm crying myself to sleep thinking, am I going to be open tomorrow? And they're all like, some other name is on it, and I thought I can't. This is gonna, this is gonna go right out of my hands. I can't do it. So I contacted someone at Women's Wear Daily, and I said, I really need help. I don't want to show anybody this collection, but I need to distribute it with a company that can do this for me at a really good price. So they introduced me to um, this man, Sydney Kimmel, who had a company that was sort of a big manufacturing company at the time. He comes to see me, and he said, well, let me see the collection. Miss Naive, I don't (laughs) even know what I'm doing. I said, no, I can't really show it to you. So he said, okay, Women's Wear says it's really great. How should we do this? So a friend of mine said, these are the things you ask for. So I said, I want... A license. I want a minimum guarantee. I want this. Is I didn't had no clue. I was so stupid, and but in some form of confidence, this man had. He said, "Okay, you can do it." Can I see it now? And I said, "Okay." And two weeks later, we had the sweats everywhere, and it really. um, And I showed it with sneakers, and I did the high heel sneaker at the time which I patented and that of course is like not having a patent at all but that was the beginning of that feeling that you can be casual and be comfortable and have a good time and that dressing up wasn't the only option so this was my sort of silent backlash at all the girdles mm. and the yeah. structured stuff
0: and what do you think about all the sportswear now that's I,
1: love so, yeah. I love it I love it. I've that I it's such so a big thing
0: for you has been this idea of clothes, women wear, buying, wearing your clothes and this idea that you can wear clothes that you can that are really easy to wear, like you can yeah. just throw them in the
1: washing machine, yeah. they don't have to be dry cleaned yeah. um, and that's sort of very important I think women's lives are so complicated now that the real luxury in in a collection is not the high price or the preciousness of each piece it's the luxury is that you can wear it a lot, you can throw it in the washing machine, you can wear a gown that's washable with sneakers during the day with a t-shirt and belts, you can just have fun with your wardrobe and you don't have to have pieces that are waiting for something good to happen before you board this special occasion mm-hmm. and we never end up wearing those really and so all of that doesn't make sense anymore so being smart and practical but practical in a timeless I'm going to have a good time in these clothes is really what I'm talking about mm-hmm. and I've got to mention shoulder pads.
0: You're often credited with inventing shoulder pads. Guilty as but charged? I'm, I'm so
1: guilty. <laughs> I'm, I, I have to say, if, if I think about something that I really look back at, I look back at a lot, and I'm like, oh, I'm okay with that. I look at shoulder pads, and certain, you know, the phase where it was really enormous, I think, oh, my God what did I do? That's so horrible. But people tell me they still have their shoulder pads because I put Velcro in them. I had this amazing person who ran my sample room, and we were trying to think of ways where you could wear a jacket over a dress that already had shoulder pads, so if you wanted to take out them. And she invented that. She out and out. She was the one Did anyone ever do double? Would they do double shoulder pads? Triple. <laughs> I mean, there were shoulder pads coming, I'm, I'm, and you've seen those photos. Yeah. So, um, yeah, not my finest hour, but somewhere in between. So remember I told you I was a big fan of the 30s and 40s, which is where the inspiration for shoulder pads came. So putting shoulder pads in sweatshirts was what I thought was, like, the best thing in the whole world, and it was. Until you got to the third shoulder pad, then <laughs> it was like stop. Her. So we definitely
0: wouldn't put shoulder pads in the cabinet, or would we?
1: You know, maybe as a reminder that we definitely are not perfect in life. <laughs> I feel like it's got to come back at some point. It always some, comes yeah. back, but it it will never. Well, I never want to say never. <laughs> Delete. It may not come back exactly the same way. And you're always so known for always moving forward and trying modern things
0: before anyone else does them even you said that you used a computer for your job which is in the 60s and um you know you did you filmed you showed films of your collections rather than runway shows before people were trying that um
1: and I was just wondering how you're
0: staying ahead now
1: um I I think the fun part of What's happening now is the way we tell our stories. And I've always been desperate to connect directly with you, not through a series of people who are interpreting what I do. So we all now realize you're here on behalf of matches who want me to tell my story directly to everybody. In the past, in old time retailing, it my story would be told through a series of fashion directors, buyers, whatever, and and nobody really heard my voice, it would be a very diluted second hand sense of, of what I was saying. So having the ability to do that and do it through social media and do do tell my story through even you know um, virtual reality to me uh, I quietly in another part of my life have been involved in virtual reality I love it how have you been involved with it well I, I will tell you that right now I'm working on a project that is about women's empowerment through virtual reality I'm I want it to be a surprise, so I'm not going to give you all the details. And it's very experimental and a lot of fun. But if I weren't doing what I'm doing, I would be doing that. That, to me, is taking technology in life and helping inform people through almost a visceral way rather than just information, storytelling that's one-dimensional. So I like the, the technology. I like using it. I like mixing it up with what I do. And I also believe my role is has always been and as much as I've questioned it through the years my role has been to make women feel good and I really like that so whether it's a dress that she feels good in or some lifestyle maybe wellnessy type concept or through some virtual reality um, tool that's really what my job is and what I think I do best Mm. And um, men are buying your clothes as well? Well, they've y- always bought yeah, your clothes, so Yeah. So in the 70s, there was a group, the New York Dolls, and they would come in and shop. Um, and they were a movement. They weren't just uh, a band. They were a movement. And they changed the the visual, the interactive connection they had to their fans their fans dressed like them they wanted to be like them and I was thrilled that they would come in and just keep changing their clothes and buying more and looking amazing and the period of time when that was going on I would say 50% of my customers and we actually checked it because we kept seeing so many guys are wearing the clothes and they were guys who were not dressing in drag they weren't wearing dresses they might put a dress on over jeans and a t-shirt but it wasn't it wasn't to be a dress it was just how they interpreted the style and I always thought it was fabulous and it was one of my favorite times to see such creativity And now I'm seeing this happen again. And the good feeling I have about it is that Gen Z are the next generation. And they have no hard lines. It's all blurred lines. And the gender blurred line, the just totally ignoring any beliefs about how a man should be or a woman should be isn't even in their psyche. They don't even get that there is a real difference. And so when guys are wearing my clothes now, it's so inspirational for me. I think you know because Gen Z is next that this is not a phase, this is not a trend, this is going to move forward and evolve. And the fact that women wear men's clothes and men wear women's clothes sort of is cool. And the genderless clothes aren't as interesting to me as a guy wearing women's clothes and a woman wearing men's clothes. That it has to really look like I'm wearing a man's suit and you're wearing a woman's shirt and jacket or whatever that may be and there's something very provocative and fun about it and i think it's probably the most stimulating thing in the industry today that we're just starting to see and mm-hmm. you also featured a man in your latest collection right. so, in the looks yeah, yeah. so the uh, assistant hairdresser was making a lot of sounds about the clothes and I didn't know what was going on. This was on the shoot. On, just just the, during the shoot yeah. and I asked the, the hairdresser, I said, so what's going on with your assistant? And he said, he's dying over the clothes. He can't wait <laughs> to try them on. And I looked at him and I thought, he looks like he's obsessed with the New York Dolls. I bet he is. So I said, you know, I used to do clothes for the New York Dolls. And he said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And I said, I knew it. Okay, when the shoot's over, we'll put on some clothes and take pictures and see how it looks. So he was like, okay. So the, the shoot ends, and 14,000 photographs, that's not an exaggeration, by the way, later. He said, well, do you remember? And I was like, oh, my God, what did I say? Okay. <laughs> and so we did the, a whole bunch of pictures, and they were so great. And he's smiling and happy. And I thought, I men never smile and are happy when they're in clothes. He's totally getting the feminine experience. And how do you better communicate the feminine experience than in a way that emotionally sort of captures that feeling? So I think that there are a lot of feminist positive things that happen in that and I think um, for us in feeling good about a guy that's wearing your shirt or your something I think that that's a good thing Yeah, I'm excited I think it's, it's going to bring a new kind of creativity Before we end is there anything else that
0: you'd like to put into your imaginary beautiful cabinet um, A bottle of olive oil.
1: I enjoyed your Instagram video of how to make, <laughs> make how popcorn with olive oil, by the way. <laughs> yes, so I grew up in a house with a Lebanese mother and a Basque father, and there was olive oil for everything. Um, I grew up understanding that olive oil is the answer to any... Illness, any anything that you want to fix or s- self care in any way, and for food, of course, of, of course. And so, I've always had that um, as a reference point in my life. And um, and around nine eleven, I started to bring back olive oil um, with a friend, and we searched. Bring it for the, back from from. The Olive belt, we searched everywhere for the best olive oils in the world, and I started to make products from the olive oil, self-care products, using um, as natural uh, combination of ingredients, which and is the where is the best oil from? Did you think? there's um, I think um, probably. Each and this isn't a di- diplomatic response, but the thing to understand about olive oil is it's never the same in each country, in each area. Depending on how much rain or how much sun, the the taste of the oil changes. Um, Spanish oil is very robust and quite gorgeous, and I have um, an organic olive oil that's spectacular. Super great on um, popcorn, by the way. Um, try it. French olive oil is very elegant and sophisticated. They don't have old trees, um, so you would think that would be a disadvantage, but they finish things. You know, the French, they always do it so well, and they do it beautifully with um, olive oil. And a very dear friend of mine is probably the top expert in finishing olive oil, and she's magnificent. And um, Italian olive oil, of course, always gets the credit for being the best olive oil in the world, Um, and it's yes and no, true. Um, because a lot of the olives come from other places. People don't know that and are finished in Italy. But when you have good Italian olive oil from Italian olive trees, it's pretty spectacular. And then there are lots of other olive oils around the world. There's a California olive oil that is starting to be good. Wow, and, but it's the whole I, world. The whole yeah. world out there. But there are so many Byproducts of olive oil that um, I love, and I'm doing a skin line and launching it this fall, and olive oil will be a part of it, or byproducts.: Do you put olive it on your oil. skin as it is already? Everywhere. My dog, just as everybody. it is. Well, out of the they're, they're a, yes, yeah. I mean, if I'm, e- if I'm making popcorn and I put <laughs> olive oil on my popcorn and I'm eating it, then it's on my hands, so I put it on my face and on <laughs> yeah. my arms and my legs, and yeah, it's always good. Well, we'll look out for those. Well, thank you so much thank for you. talking to us. It's well, it's an interesting really group of things. I had no idea that would be my uh, selection, well, there but you thank go. you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about 5 Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion and the hashtag 5 Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.